Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, Bill Gates, the head of the world's largest charitable foundation. What do we now know about this strange virus and its effects? Has the lockdown worked? Is America ready to open up for business again? Will we have a vaccine? And when? I will ask Bill Gates these questions and more. Also, where in the world did the virus come from? Was it from a wet market or a Chinese lab? Will we ever know? We will get the latest science from one of the world's foremost virus detectives. Finally, in this Earth Week, I'll tell you about the silver linings in the COVID crisis for Mother Earth. But first, here's my take. Poor Brian Kemp. He obviously didn't get the memo. When the governor of Georgia announced on Monday that he was going to begin opening up his state's economy, he must have assumed that President Trump would lavish him with praise. After all, just days earlier, the president had said publicly the country was starting our life again and indicated that some states were ready to open up. On Wednesday, Trump tweeted, states are safely coming back. Our country is starting to open for business again. And yet, hours after that tweet, at his daily press conference, the president announced that he disagreed strongly with Kemp's decision. Welcome to Donald Trump's re-election strategy, where he is both the government and the fiery opposition to that government. Populism has always fundamentally been a protest movement of outsiders railing against a corrupt elite that runs the country. Right-wing populism, additionally, makes a distinction between the real people and the others who tend to be foreigners, immigrants, blacks, Jews, and other minorities. Now, this strategy works well when you're out of government. Once you're inside, though, you face a challenge. Politicians who win elections usually try to broaden their base and unify the nation. But populism depends on division and dissatisfaction. In addition, in times of genuine emergency, people sober up. Across the world, many populist parties that frivolously attack the establishment have struggled to make their voices heard. In a pandemic, it turns out, many people want their governments to take an active stance preferably based on advice from experts. Trump's solution is to play insider and outsider simultaneously. One day he announces a careful plan devised by public health officials that announces a step-by-step process for opening up. The next day he sides with street protesters against governors who are following those very guidelines. It's a complicated dance. You can watch the two Trumps at his press conferences. 
He begins the session as President Trump, making the day's official pronouncements, reading in a dreary monotone from a script he doesn't appear to have looked at before. And then from time to time, Donald Trump, the populist icon, suddenly pops up, commenting on his own script. For example, to say, after recommending the use of masks, This is voluntary. I don't think I'm going to be doing it. The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde routine continues throughout the briefing. As his own health officials take the podium to make some substantive point, Trump will jump in to say something that is at odds with the message they are trying to convey. But Trump seems worried that this dance may not be enough to win him re-election, especially as unemployment mounts. The president has surely noticed that his approval ratings remain roughly where they were before the pandemic, which is astonishing given that crises usually boost presidential approval enormously. So he has doubled down on the attack strategy against the usual scapegoats, the media and what has become an absurd daily routine, as well as blue state governors, liberal cities, international organizations, and now, of course, most pointedly, China. He's also returning to his favorite target, immigrants. The president's ban on immigrants seeking green cards from coming into the country for 60 days is strange since the U.S. has already largely halted immigration. But it's not really a policy. It is a political symbol, a reminder to Trump's base that they can always count on him. There is, of course, another path. Donald Trump could have used the crisis to rally the nation around a common foe. He could have provided calm, sensible leadership, stayed on message with his own health officials and fostered unity rather than division. That's the approach of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who now has a 79% approval rating. It is the strategy of Emmanuel Macron, who has moved up 10 points in his very polarized country. But it turns out that Donald Trump knows only one dance, call it the populism hustle, and he seems uninterested in learning any other. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right to the main event. Bill Gates barely needs any introduction. I will simply remind you he is one of the world's richest people, and he has dedicated a large share of his fortune and his expertise to fighting diseases. He has now taken a lead role in the search for a vaccine and a cure for the coronavirus. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding factories for each of the seven most promising ideas for a vaccine, even though Gates freely admits that only one or maybe two of them will actually be used. I'm now joined by Bill Gates. Pleasure to have you on, Bill. Good to see you. So if you were to explain to people in general, would you tell them that we now know the coronavirus is more deadly, less deadly, more transmissible, less transmissible? How do you characterize this one? Um, Well, we know that if we do these extreme socialization measures, we get the reproductive rate below one, which means that the total number of active infections starts to go down. What we don't know is we go slightly back to normal, which activities uh, create the risk of a rebound. And so we need to put into place a very dense testing regime so you would detect uh, that rebound going back into the exponential growth 
very quickly and not wait for the ICUs to fill up and there to be lots of deaths. You know, if you see the hot spot, you can understand the activities causing that, uh, change policy there and get it back uh, down to the, into the decline. So that the, the brute force tactic that was used did work. It worked in you know, every country, uh, but that's caused such immense damage. Now we want to back off from that and we're a little naive about how to prioritize those activities. We need uh, the testing, we need strong leadership that where the scientific community and the politicians are saying, okay, what's the value? Things like school obviously have a very high value if we can figure out a format that's not driving a lot of infection. So you, you talk about testing, everybody talks about it, and it seems bizarre, you know, just from the outside, that it would be so hard. I mean, this is the richest country in the world. Um, you know, there were, people have made analogies to wars. During World War II, the United States went from a standing start, uh, zero uh, planes, to being able to produce a plane every 63 minutes in one of the, the Ford factories. Why can't testing be ramped up to the million-a-day level that a lot of people, uh, experts, believe would be necessary to help reopen? Yeah, so it looks like with new machines and using them in a better way, we'll be able to get up to four or 500,000 a day. That's just barely enough for really doing the tracking. There's some very innovative ways of running those machines or eventually getting the strip test that could take us to higher numbers. The key thing about the US though is this focus on the number of tests uh, understates the, the cacophony and the mistakes we've made in our testing system. The access to that testing system is very unequal. The wrong people are being tested. And anytime you don't get results in less than 24 hours, the value of the test is dramatically reduced. And so the US is unique in terms of uh, just, you know, it's who you know, whether you get in the front of the line, uh, asymptomatics can get in front of the line and you get these lines that are, that are way too long. Let me ask you about the vaccine that, you know, that you've been so involved in. Um, so when I talk to experts, it's sort of there's a range of views, one of which is, look, we may not get a vaccine. You know, we don't have vaccines against other, some other coronaviruses. There are some viruses for which you don't get one. And on the other side, people telling me, well, with so many efforts being made like yours, the government is also doing one, uh, the British government is doing one, the Chinese are undoubtedly doing one we'll actually end up with a vaccine much faster than people are predicting. Well, it's very hard to compress these time frames. And, you know, if everything went perfectly, we'd be in scale manufacturing within a year. Uh, we may not achieve that. It could be as long as two years. There's over 100 efforts. What we need to do is pick the most promising of those, get money, sort of going full speed, build the manufacturing in parallel, some of which is shared like the fill finish, which is the last step uh, where there's nowhere near the capacity for the 7 billion doses. So we need to do that. But are you optimistic it'll be on the shorter end? I mean, I've heard people say maybe by December we could imagine starting production. No, I mean, I don't. The, you know, Moderna, you have to do these phase three studies that help you understand if somebody has a condition X or Y or Z, does it create a side effect? You know, there's people with defective immune systems. There's all sorts of things. So the size of the phase three, the global regulators are going to have to get together and decide how many people, what length of time that goes in. And you'll have to trial where there's a very heavy infection rate. So, uh, you know, the, 
the idea of uh, being in manufacture by the end of the year, that's beyond my uh, what's likely. Dr. Fauci and I have you know, been fairly consistent in saying 18 months to not create uh, expectations that are too high because this influences, short of a miracle set of therapeutics, this influences when we get to go back to true normal. Next on GPS, Bill Gates on when and how the economy will come back. And we are back now with Bill Gates, whose foundation has already committed more than a quarter of a billion dollars to fighting COVID-19. Let me ask you about the economy. Um, when trying to open up, one of the challenges is some states are opening up uh, earlier than others. Uh, some countries are opening up earlier. Um, can we be sure uh, we, you know, that we know uh, what exactly the right levers are and how to open up? And I ask this because uh, there are a lot of governors, for example, who are criticizing the, uh, the predictions that were made. The Florida governor says, look, there were all these models that predicted to us that we would need 200,000, 300,000 hospital beds in use for COVID. We have 2,000 beds. In other words, the predictions were way off. We didn't, you know, and, and the implication is they didn't do an enormous amount of the hardcore lockdown, and they're still okay. What do you say to them? Well, I wouldn't say they're okay. They're not suffering as widespread an epidemic yet, uh, if they open up enough, they can go back into exponential growth and, you know, compete with New York on that basis. The uncertainties about this mean that because of the exponential nature of this, yes, some models were wildly wrong. You know, models are never going to be perfect in these things. But we can learn, you know, when you have countries uh, that are sending, say, young children back to school, uh, Germany, Denmark, Austria have a good enough testing regime uh, you know, more competent than the U.S. So they actually will be able to see the effect of that. Norway is actually doing it in a differential within different parts of the country, which will help inform us. The problem with the United States is that unless you interdict travel, any state that goes too far and gets into that exponential growth will be seeding other parts of the country. And so it'll be like international travel where you have force of infection coming in, and that's very tricky to deal with. But... Uh, you know, the, the need for the testing piece, I, you know, I don't, I haven't found anyone to argue with it, but uh, the, uh, they're not stepping up to actually do it yet, uh, and that's got to be the federal level. Um, so w everyone says when we open, it's going to be slow, it's only going to be parts of the economy. People have estimated 20 percent, 30 percent. Give us, you know, the, the best case scenario. Um, you know, you've, you've heard this metaphor of the hammer and the dance. The dance being now you start opening up these, uh, uh, the economy and through a kind of moderate amount of uh, social distancing, you are able to achieve. What will we be able to achieve? What's the, what's the good case scenario? You know, the best case is you pick the high value activities like school, manufacturing, construction, and figure out a way to do those with kind of masks and distancing, you know, in the school, you don't want the hallways to have tons of kids all at once or the lunchroom. Um, and then you can see, is that a, are those schools a source of infection spreading up into the elderly, uh, which then, you know, would, would cause some level of mortality. I'm uh, hopeful Bill, there can will I, be a way. Can, to I, yeah. can I just ask you about schools? Because everyone is so, is so curious and worried about this. You have three kids. Um, you know how schools work. I mean, 
lots of people crowded together in classrooms, in dormitories, in hallways. That is almost the, the definition of school. How, how do you get it going? Well, certainly for the younger age kids where the online substitute is inferior, uh, more inferior than as you get up, say, to college level, that online can capture, at least in terms of the academics, a lot of, of what uh, goes on. There, you know, what we've seen in terms of infection levels is pretty low, and you do have uh, some European countries uh, that are moving ahead with that, and because of their testing, will understand uh, what the viral load is and, you know, compare households with kids going to school versus households that don't have that uh, coming in. Uh, so over the course of this summer, some of that will be learned. And in the fall, that will be one of the toughest questions. It's right on the boundary of, is there a tasteful way to do it that, that particularly for the low-income students where the online learning hasn't been fully enabled because either they don't have the equipment or the connection or their teacher isn't set up for it, uh, you know, the inequity has gotten greater in education. Uh, so if we can figure out how to do K through 12 in the fall, uh, that would be good. I even think if, if we're creative about it and things have gone well, uh, we'll be able to do college. But there's a lot of data we'll be uh, learning from globally, uh, uh, and we'll see the progress on the tools as well that will inform those decisions. So it'll probably be in August where, you know, the idea of what's the protocol uh, how many schools are are uh, opening up that, you know, we won't really know enough until pretty close to the, the start. So you've you've written both in your uh, in your paper that's on your uh, on Gates notes, which I really recommend people read. Um, and you've said elsewhere, the economy is not going to be anything like uh, it was. It's going to take a long time to recover. It's going to be, you know, people are going to be surprised at how slow and how how fitful this is. So what is it that the stock market is seeing that you, Bill Gates, are not seeing? The stock market is now basically at a routine annual correction. It seems, you know, it, 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 it is not really factoring in, it seems to me, the kind of economy you're describing. Well, you know, some companies, their valuation, if you took out two years of earnings, there's still enough earnings out in years three to N that the valuation wouldn't change that much. And, you know, if you, so if you have companies that don't run into a liquidity problem and whose long-term profitability is, is strong, then the valuation adjustment isn't necessarily that dramatic. You do have an economy that's going to be, be operating at a lower level, and that affects all sorts of spending. There's no doubt that'll be the case uh, for years to come. Uh, and so that, you know, uh, should affect overall valuations. You know, there aren't that many great investments. I mean, buying treasury bills uh, right now doesn't seem that attractive. So I'm not as, you know, I'm an expert on vaccines and ther therapy. I talk uh, to people about the economy. Like you, I find it a little uh, surprising uh, where the market is. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to focus on that. You're, are you surprised that Microsoft, for example, is trading at the same price that it was in December uh, before you know, the coronavirus? You know, tech companies uh, in some ways benefit from an acceleration of a move towards digital approaches, even though their next few years, they'll have a lot of customers that they'll be, you know, helping out, giving free licenses to, you know, where things won't, won't be as strong. 
Uh, so, you know, if there's any sector of the economy where you could say, okay, it's not that drastic of a change, you'd probably pick that. But again, valuations is not the, uh, where I add, add the most value. Next on GPS, Bill Gates on China. Is that the country that is the villain of this crisis, as President Trump has implied? Let me ask you about the rest of the world, um, which, of course, particularly the poorer countries are going to be hit hard for all kinds of obvious reasons. They don't have as good a health care system and things like that. Now, I've read as a result a couple of very interesting analyses that say, look, for these countries, there's a real question about whether they should be going for a full lockdown model, because... Uh, first of all, many of them have people very, you know, living in slums which are very tightly crowded. I, I grew up in Bombay. There's a, there's a slum there called Haravi, which I'm sure you visited, where the density uh, of people is 800,000 per square mile. To compare, New York is 27,000 per square mile. So actually, if you send those people to work, you're, you're helping them socially dis- you know, distance themselves. It's by staying at home that they are, you know, become kind of living in Petri dishes. Um, there's also the fact that it's, it's warmer, they have fewer old people, that for that reason, poor countries should really be thinking about this differently. Yeah, I think that's right. The, this is, to me, the, one of the greatest uncertainties is the reported cases coming out of developing countries, whether it's India, Pakistan, uh, Nigeria, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, those case numbers are still fairly small. Now, you know, we funded ramping up that testing capacity, but it's still limited. You know, there are reasons people might not want to come forward to volunteer uh, to be tested. The initial spread is probably more amongst the international travelers. That's a fairly narrow group of people. But sadly, unless there's some magic positive factor we don't understand, eventually the slums you're talking about uh, will experience very widespread infection. And the social isolation measures probably can't get the reproductive rate below one. Uh, and, you know, people need food. And, you know, if the government tries to overdo things, you'll get, you know, riots, starvation. Uh, you know, you could have a complete collapse in civil order if you're not careful. So I do think the creativity of how you reduce the infection rate while making sure people still get uh, food, that's really an unsolved problem. It's, it, it worked for the rich countries with that gigantic economic price, and it might not in these countries. And how do they get out of it economically? I mean, what are the, you know, the United States at some level can print money. Um, most of these countries have to borrow. They have to borrow on international markets. It's much, much harder. W- what happens here? Well, I'm afraid a great deal of... Uh, hardship. Uh, You know, even things like routine vaccination, the rates are going down, and that alone will account for a lot of deaths. The measles campaigns that are important, uh, that, you know, we've been modeling out out what it means. So, you know, things at the basic level of very basic health care, very basic sustenance are much tougher. And so sadly, as is the case in most bad situations, the poor countries and the poor citizens will be the ones who bear the brunt of the burden. And all the more reason that the world should uh, get the billions uh, to build the tools and get those tools not just to the countries who finance them or have the great scientific 
uh, and manufacturing capability, but get them to the entire globe. You've been making this case for international cooperation uh, very uh, powerfully and, to my mind, persuasively. Um, there is right now in Washington a very different mood, which is to say, uh, far from cooperating with the second largest economy in the world, it is China that is to blame for this virus. You've been following this very carefully. How would you respond to the charge that, look, the Chinese covered this up, uh, they've essentially deceived uh, the rest of the world, and as a result, they should be held in some way responsible for this? Well, I don't think that's a timely thing because it doesn't affect how we act today. Uh, you know, China did a lot of things right. You know, at the beginning, like any country where a virus first shows up, you know, they can look back and say where they, they missed some things. Uh, you, know, a lot of the, there, you know, some countries did respond very quickly and get their testing in place, and they avoided the incredible economic pain. And it's sad that even the U.S., that you would have expected to do this well, uh, did it particularly poorly. But it's not time to talk about that. But this is the time to take the great science we have, the fact that we're in this together, uh, you know, fix testing, treatments, and get that vaccine, and you know, minimize the trillions of dollars uh, and many things that you can't even dimensionalize in economic terms uh, that are awful about the situation that we're in. So that's a distraction. Uh, I think there's a lot of you know, incorrect and unfair things said, but it's not even time for that discussion. You've worked a lot with the WHO over the years. Um, what do you think of the charge that they didn't push back hard enough or maybe were even complicit in China doing a certain amount of deception and not revealing everything they did? China did not give WHO the access uh, that they should have, um, also the CDC. Do you think the WHO is culpable? Basically, no. I mean, in the retrospective, we'll see things that WHO could have done better, just like every actor in this whole picture. Uh, but the, you know, the WHO has a strong connection with one country. Uh, that country is the United States. The number of CDC people who are there, or people who used to work for the CDC, there's no UN agency more connected to a country than WHO is to CDC. People think WHO is funded to do all sorts of things that their tiny little budget doesn't let them do. Uh, you know, so they're a thousandth, their budget is a thousandth of what's spent on healthcare in the US. They don't invent vaccines, they don't understand vaccine factories, but what they do is very, very important. You know, the eradication of smallpox, the progress on polio eradication. It's a phenomenal organization that we're more dependent on them today to drive things than we ever have been. And so, you know, we need to support them, help them, and, you know, at the right time, fine. Think about uh, for pandemic two, how should all of us do a lot better? You have been caught up in this controversy where you have now, you and, and Dr. Fauci are the targets of a certain, you know, kind of right wing campaign saying uh, you, you, you guys are in some way part of a conspiracy. Does it, does it, does it bother you? Does it affect the way you need, you need to do your work? Well, it is. There's a certain irony that, you know, having put a lot of energy into trying to warn about this uh, vulnerability uh, and not getting much investment to be made, uh, sadly, you know, I always think, could I, how could I have gotten the message out in a stronger way? Where did I fall short? Because you know, only 5% of what should have been done 
was done. The irony of having that person be accused of creating the virus you know, seems uh, a bit strange. I don't know that a meaningful number of people believe that. It, it does kind of get amplified. Uh, you know, there are people who want to view this through a political lens, not a scientific lens, and you know that uh, can lead you to you know some strange views about let's not you know speak the truth or look at the real numbers or compare countries in a rational way. Uh, but hey, we've got to get our heads down here and look at these therapeutics. A lot will fail, but some of the the ones that are less celebrated, uh, I'm very hopeful for. Bill Gates, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Next on GPS, one of the biggest mysteries in this crisis is how did the virus make the leap to humans? Many fingers point to China at its wet markets in Wuhan. But what about the virology lab a few miles away? I will get the latest science from one of the world's foremost virus hunters when we get back. So where did the novel coronavirus come from? That is the million-dollar question that scientists around the world are trying to answer, including my next guest, Peter Daszak. He is one of the world's foremost virus hunters, tracking down different strains of viruses in their main host animal often, the bat. Peter, thanks for joining me. Um, Let me ask you to begin by telling us How do you do what you do? How do you figure out where a virus comes from? Well, first of all, uh, we we look at the past history of pandemics and look at the where they originated. And we do a lot of sort of analyses of that and say, what are the underlying drivers? And we go to those places on the planet and we look at wildlife because almost all pandemics originate in animals, usually wildlife, often bats. And then we go out and we catch those animals and we sample them and we look for viruses and we try and work out out of the viruses we find which could be the next pandemic and which are safe and then try and reduce the risk of those emerging. How do you how do you figure out, um, I, I guess, physically you go into bat caves and uh, and get, uh, you know, get blood from bats? Well, we go, we go into bat caves. Um, we, we were, um, you know, Full, um, you know, full PPE, uh, masks, gloves, uh, um, suits to protect ourselves from getting infected, just to even go in a cave. And then um, as, as it goes towards dusk, we set mist nets up outside the cave, we catch the bats, and then we sample them. And we take blood samples, salival swabs, uh, fecal samples, and we look for viruses in those in the lab. We look for the genetic sequences of the viruses. So with this one, there seems to be a, a, a broad consensus that it came from a bat, uh, probably a bat in Wuhan. And the controversy is, did it come from a, a bat in the Wuhan wet market or from a bat in the level four lab that is a few miles away? Do you th- is there any sense you have as to which is more likely? I think you're, the question is right. What we've got to do, it may be that we'll never really know the answer as to where this virus actually originated. But what you've got to do is look at this in a balance of probabilities. Our work shows that people in Southeast Asia are exposed to these viruses every single day, every single year. Uh, we predict between 1 and 7 million people a year actually get infected by these bat coronaviruses. And it's only occasionally that that, that unlucky person happens to go to a market or the, the animal infects someone in a wildlife market and then the virus can spread and become pandemic. 
Uh, we, we think that probably the, these, these viruses originate in southwest China or even bordering countries. And we found hundreds of bat coronaviruses in those regions. And people there have an intimate connection with wildlife, including hunting and eating them. You know the head of that level four virology lab, Xinjiang Li. Um, do you think that uh, she is being entirely honest when she says confidently and with certitude that the virus was not from a bat in her lab? Well, we work with labs in around 40 countries around the world. We've been doing this work for 20 years, and uh, we only work with good laboratories. Uh, Zhongli Shi is an excellent virologist. I have no reason to believe that she's not telling the truth. Everything I've heard in my 15 years of working with people in that lab has been absolutely normal and what you'd expect from virology labs. And the real kicker to all of this is that they didn't have the virus in the lab anyway. Um, nobody has the virus um, from bats that then led to COVID-19. We've not found it yet. We've found close relatives, but it's not the same virus. So to my mind, it's, you know, it's, it's not a possibility. But there is a concern that there has been some uh, a, a, a cover-up, maybe too strong a word, but the Chinese government is not allowing researchers access to the lab. They have not shared information. There is now even a ban or a censoring of scientific articles coming out of China on COVID-19. Does that, what do you think is going on and does that make you suspicious or is it reasonable to be suspicious? Well, I think what happened is um, after we found this pandemic, it became politicized. Um, you know, early on, China was very open. They shared the full genome sequences of the viruses um, openly with the rest of the world very, very quickly, quicker than we've ever seen this before for any country, really. Um, so so open, openness and transparency was there early on. But I think we started to see um, the conspiracy theories, the pointing of the finger at China, and just this sort of politicization that means countries clamp up. And it's really unfortunate because what we need right now is open communication with scientists across the world. China's done a lot to deal with this virus before us. They know a lot about how to control it. We need access to that information. And talking in political uh, terms about this outbreak closes down that access. Um, you said we may not ever know, uh, but I want to ask you, there is one possibility, is there not, which is that this went from a bat to another species and then from that species to a human being. Well, we saw that with SARS. SARS went from a bat into civets and into people, and that's happened with other viruses around the world. So that is a common pathway by which they emerge. You know, they get into another species that's farmed, for instance, where there's a lot of them, and it just amplifies the amount of virus available to infect people. And a final question, just to explain to everybody, why bats? Um, I mean, explain how bats have a high immune system and they gather together. What, is, what, what explains why bats are the source of all these problems? Yeah, I feel really sorry for bats because they don't exactly get a good rap in uh, human history anyway. Um, and here they are carrying these viruses. Well, the viruses in bats don't seem to do much damage. They're in the GI tract. Um, bats carry Ebola and uh, Marburg virus, rabies and others. And usually they're pretty harmless. And what we think is that bats have a, an ability to carry a higher viral load, a higher amount of virus in their body and a higher diversity of viruses. And that may be related to the fact that they're the only flying mammal. And flying has such a, a stress on the system
that their immune response would constantly be reacting to the breakdown of cellular products, so they dampen the immune system down. There's good evidence for that. And, and don't forget, you know, bats are actually very common, very abundant, very diverse, about one-fifth of all mammals, um, and we don't see them, so we don't really appreciate how exposed we are to bats flying overhead at night, bats flying into our farms, people going into bat caves on a daily basis in these regions. Peter, this has been so illuminating. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Fred. And we will be back. This week, instead of a book, I'd like to recommend a show, The Plot Against America. If you want to take your mind off COVID, you can plunge yourself into this rich and brilliant screen adaptation of Philip Roth's great novel, The Life of a Jewish Family in Newark, against the backdrop of an alternate history of America where Charles Lindbergh gets elected president. It's on HBO, our sister broadcaster. And now for the last look. Wednesday was the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, a day normally celebrated with marches and gatherings, all filled with calls to action to save the planet. This year, though, the streets remained empty. The coronavirus call for inaction taking precedence. But all of this inaction, while causing so many humans problems, has actually proven to be quite good for Mother Earth. In recent weeks, penguins came out to play near Cape Town. Goats swarmed the streets of Wales on now-deserted beaches of Thailand and Florida. Conservationists noticed more sea turtle nests than they've seen in years. And with some one-third of the world's population stuck indoors, air pollution has dropped dramatically. Take Los Angeles, a city known for its traffic and smog. Earlier this month, researchers from a global air quality tech company rated that city's air pollution one of the lowest on Earth. And after India imposed the largest lockdown in the world, researchers found that the air in the capital of New Delhi was 60% less polluted than the previous year. Milan has even decided to reassign some 20 miles of busy traffic lanes to pedestrians and cyclists to discourage people from getting into cars after the lockdown ends, as The Guardian notes. Globally, CO2 emissions are expected to fall 6% this year, according to the World Meteorological Organization. But even that may not be enough. The UN predicts that to avoid a dangerous rise in temperature, global emissions must fall not 6%, but 7.6% each year for an entire decade, an amount even they worry is impossible. And all this progress can be quickly reversed. In February, when China's COVID cases were at a peak and large swaths of its population were on lockdown, the country's nitrogen dioxide emissions came down dramatically. Well, satellite imagery shows that as soon as the lockdown ended, those NO2 emissions started to creep back up. To make matters worse, China is doubling down on coal to overcome a COVID slowdown. In March alone, construction was approved for more coal-fired plants than in all of 2019, the FT reports. And with politicians and protesters around the world demanding a focus on economic growth, I worry that more countries are likely to follow suit. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country.
Max subscription required.